The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. You'll remain standing and turn your Bibles. The book of Ephesians. We continue making our way through Ephesians. We're in chapter 4, in verses 17 to 24. This is page 978 if you're using the Pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 4, and beginning in verse 17 until verse 24. Let's worship the Lord by once again giving careful attention to this, the reading of his word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." Amen. This far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and seek his help as we come to the word this evening. May your word, O Lord, be for us a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We need your grace, O God, to receive that word rightly again this evening. So we pray that you would come to us. Bless us, Lord God. Bless us in the knowledge of that truth, which is in Christ Jesus. We ask for this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. So I was thinking about these words before us this evening. It it called to mind an experience I had way back in my seminary days. I remember hearing an individual critiquing that position known as the non-lordship salvation position. We've talked about that recently in Sunday school. We spoke about this, the idea that that a a true Christian, can, true born-again Christian, can know Jesus as Savior while not having received him as Lord, that the true saved believer willfully refusing submission to Christ as Lord. And I knew that that position wasn't right, but I remember being a bit taken back by the strength with which this individual was condemning that position when he referred to it as a false gospel, a false gospel. I remember thinking to myself, well, isn't that a bit harsh? I mean, I know that people who think that way, surely they're a bit fuzzy-minded, but can we really say that they're believing a false gospel? Well, friends, I want you to know just how important it, important to the the Christian truth is this truth that every believer must understand his or her duty to obey the Lord Jesus. How important is the truth that uh, that not only must we understand our duty, but that this obedience is all of the grace of Christ, but it's true of every individual that is in the grace of Christ. 
by the power of the Spirit by whom we've been united to Christ. Note how Paul begins the text this evening, verse 1. Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord. It's kind of an unusual way to begin uh, instruction regarding practical Christian living. Paul uses the kind of language that we might expect if he was setting forth something like, you know, the truth of the death death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This I say, I testify in the Lord. Christ has been crucified and been raised from the dead. So this is striking language he uses to call the Ephesian believers unto obedience. And not only the opening words, note note also those words, at the end of verse 21 there, kind of right in the center of the text, we see those words, as the truth is in Jesus. I decided to make those words the, uh, the title of my sermon this evening because I think they sort, of, they sort of capture the tone of the passage. And again, they speak of just how indispensable to truth, to gospel truth, is our doctrine of sanctification, as surely as the truth is in Jesus. Indeed, as as surely as Christ has been crucified and raised from the dead is the reality of the new life in at work in every true believer. The new life which you must walk as a Christian is what Paul is saying. The new which, which, the new life which you will walk only by the grace of Christ, only by the spirit of the resurrected Christ, the power of the spirit. Both these truths are, are so important. This is no peripheral matter. Our message this evening is this. You must walk according to your new life in Christ. And so we consider that, that new life in which we must walk this evening. And we note three things about that life, just three points this evening. We're going to note first that it is, it is a walk which is in contrast with Gentile lostness. And then secondly, we'll see that, that that walk reflects true Christ learning. And then lastly, we see that it is the Spirit's work of recreation after God's image that work with the, which the Spirit does in every true believer. So consider first then about this walk, new walk in Christ. It's contrast with Gentile lostness. Here we're focusing on that first section there, verses 17 through 19. We see that, that verse 17 command, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, I, I suggested before, based on what we saw back in, in chapter 2, verses 11 and following, that this Ephesian congregation was likely mostly a Gentile congregation. So, so very beautifully, Paul here is building on what we saw there when he is suggesting that, that he's, he's commanding even to these Gentile believers, don't live like Gentiles. Point Paul is making here is you are not to live like Gentiles because you are no longer Gentiles. You may be Gentiles physically according to the flesh, but you are not Gentiles spiritually. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been made to be heirs of the covenants of promise that were given to Israel. You've been made to be those who share in the commonwealth of Israel. 
Well, because that is the case, you must not, you must not walk as the Gentiles. As you look at the words here, the point he really seems to be making on one level is this. Why would you want to walk as they walk? They're lost. You have been found. You have been saved by grace. If we look at the description there uh, in these verses of that, that Gentile lostness, I think we can, we can characterize that lostness with four subpoints. We can, we can say that it's characterized by, first of all, futility. Secondly, depravity of mind. Third, hardness of heart. And then lastly, out of that flows sinful conduct. So futility, depravity of mind hardness of heart, and then sinful conduct. Think about that word futility. It's a word which uh, which ought to call to mind our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, right? All is vanity of vanities. All is vanity, or all is, all is hebel is the Hebrew word. All is futile or without purpose. Life is without meaning. It's empty. It is this miserable enterprise which ends in death. As we stop and think about that, I think we do well this evening to, to stop and think about the unbelieving world around us. Think about our, our unbelieving friends. In fact, think particularly about that, 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 that kind of person who we would think of as really fitting in the category of absolute lostness. Maybe we think about the, the, the most wicked. Think about those who uh, these days have been gathering in the streets or in the universities in protests, protests which sometimes even turn violent, sometimes even turn into riots. And let's say they're taking up a wicked cause. You know, we might not all agree or disagree about what's the current political climate and so forth, but we can certainly agree that there are those who sometimes gather together and protest for a wicked cause. Maybe we could imagine those, you know, gathering to to protest in in uh, in favor of abortion rights, for example, pro-abortion rallies. You know, it's easy for us when we think about the lost to think about just how wicked and how evil they are. And of course, there's a place for that. Paul does that. He does so in order to to set forth, by contrast, how Christians ought to live. But I think his words here really, really speak even more to the wickedness is the lostness. They're, they're lost. I think we do well probably when we think about unbelievers to think not, not, not so much about how bad they are as how, how sad they are. Really, primarily that's, I think, what we ought to think about. Futility. They're without her, a uh, hope, without purpose. Verse 18 tells us that they are alienated from the life of God. What a, what a sad description. And we stop and think about how God created us as, as people, humankind. God created us with that, that purpose, that, that goal of life, sharing in God's own life. That good creational design of God was reflected in that original covenant, the covenant of life. Remember that there in the garden, under probation, the call to obey God was connected to that, that hope. It was kind of an invitation. Come and live. Come and share in my life. Come and dwell with me in fellowship forever and ever. 
course, we know, we know the, the, the sad, sad story. Adam sinned, and he and, and all of his descendants were cut off from that hope, cut off from God. So we can describe them as those who are without hope and without God in this world. Of course, wonderfully and happily, God renewed that hope, and he did so by means of another covenant, the covenant of grace, that covenant which he made known to his covenant people, Israel, the descendants of Abraham. To them, he revealed that the blessing of life forevermore. But Paul's point here is that the the Gentiles, they don't have that hope. They live in utter futility. And note its effect on the mind, our second sub-point here. Paul doesn't just write futility. He writes futility of mind or futility of thinking. Their minds are, are not set on any transcendent goal or purpose of life in glory with God. Their minds are not set on things above. Rather, their minds are fixed on things of this earth, this sin-cursed world where indeed all is hebel, futility. Verse 18 says they're darkened in their understanding. We even see that word ignorance. They're alienated, it says, from the life of God due to or because of the ignorance that is in them. What a sad description. Futility of minds darkened in their understanding. Ignorance is in them. Of course, Paul's not saying that unbelievers are stupid, right? We're certainly not our Christian testimony that, that our unbelieving friends are all idiots, not at all. Quite to the contrary, in one sense, we have to affirm that they can be quite brilliant, right? God in his grace, of course, uh, he, he restrains the effects of the cursed so that, 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 that the people can be quite intelligent. We have unbelieving brain surgeons and nuclear physicists and rocket scientists, folks that are a lot smarter than I am, that's for sure. And indeed, they can even, uh, even on matters of ethics and justice, they can show quite amazing capacity for, for moral and intellectual capacity, right? All of this is by God's common grace, gifts that he gives to all people. But without Christ, all of their intellectual, all of their moral pursuits are not oriented towards that transcendent goal that we have of glorifying and enjoying God forever. And in that sense, it, it reveals that their, their hearts are not right. That's what we see next, our third subpoint. What is the source of all of this hopelessness and this sinful thinking and living The heart of the problem, we're reminded, is the problem of the heart. And so we see in verse 18 that the ignorance that is in them is due to their hardness of heart. And we can say that that all mankind is just like Pharaoh, right? Remember when, when, when God sent Moses to go to Pharaoh and said, thus says the Lord, let my people go. Israel are my people. Let my people go. And how did Pharaoh respond? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know the Lord and I will not obey him. I will not let his people go. I will not obey hardness of heart. Verse 19 says they become callous. I think in, in English we distinguish that, that word callous, O-U-S, from the word callous, U-S, to refer to that, that hard, uh, hard skin, maybe on our fingers or on our 
feet, but it's it's the same word in the text here. This can refer to skin, callous. I remember being amazed in uh, where we lived in Africa in Karamoja, where people so often, so many people just walked everywhere in bare feet, and they would develop these thick, thick skin calluses. So sometimes they might step on a little thorn and not even feel this thorn sticking in the foot, unlike me with my delicate skin, the tiniest little thorn, and they'd laugh at me while I'm writhing in, in pain. Well, well, spiritually, we're all callous. That's what we are by nature. We are, we are insensitive. Mankind in his lostness, insensitive to the effects of sin. Our hearts are not pricked. That's the way Paul describes the Gentiles here. That they're not, they're not bothered by wickedness. One writer puts it this way. They, they've lost the capacity to feel shame or embarrassment by it, by sin. Hardness of heart. And then, last subpoint, out of that flows all sinful conduct. So verse 19 continues with that description. They have, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is, they've, they've given themselves over to unbridled and excessive indecency, especially sexual immorality and that of every and any imaginable kind. And note especially that word greedy. Not only do they commit it, they're greedy for it. I think that should make us think back to that word futility. It's like it's futile. They give themselves to it, but they're futile. And in vain do they seek to satisfy their carnal appetites. They try to fill themselves up with every kind of imaginal, imaginable impurity, but it only leaves them greedy for more. They never become full. They are never, never satisfied. And so what a sad portrait this is of human depravity, lostness indeed. And Paul is saying, don't be drawn to it. You must not walk that way because by God's grace, that is not who you are. God has saved you from that. To think that you can walk that way is contrary to the gospel of grace, which you have been taught. And that brings us to our, our second main point about this walk in, in that new life which we have in Christ. And that is that it reflects Christ learning, Christ learning. This is the second section, verses 20 to 21, after this description of, of the lostness of the Gentiles. He writes, verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. I love that verse. Not the way you've learned Christ. I'm actually quite fond of the old King James translation, which says, but ye have not so learned Christ or, or learned the Christ the Messiah. You've not learned. Children, what, what, what kind of things are you learning? What kind of things have you learned recently? Maybe you've learned how to tie your shoes. Maybe you've learned how to read and write. We think of the, the basic learning we experience as we learn all of these things growing up. Well, as Christians, we learn here that we are, we are fundamentally, we are learners. But we're not, we're not, we're not simply learning things, right? We're not simply learning a bunch of doctrinal facts or a bunch of, you know, a list of do's and do, uh, do's and don'ts or even a bunch of Bible stories. We certainly are learning all those things. But no, we're learners of a person. 
Just think about that this evening. Learners of Christ, all of our our learning is oriented towards that one central purpose of learning him, learning Jesus. We are Christ learners. In fact, Paul really focuses not so much on the ongoing process, so there is an ongoing process, but he really speaks of it in terms of the completed aspect. You have learned you are you are learned. I think that word learned as an adjective is sort of passe in American English, but it was very common, commonly used uh, over in Uganda and the African English. I remember one time uh, two women were speaking to each other and one of them slipped into the, the, uh, the local tribal language. Well, they both were educated, learned. They spoke English and the other seemed to think it was inappropriate in that context not to speak English. And she said, you speak English. We are learned. I remember trying not to chuckle and I heard that, but she was basically saying, act according to what we have learned. And in a sense, that's what Paul was telling these Ephesians. You are to walk according to what you have learned and walking as the Gentiles walk, that is not what you have learned. Here again, as I said at the beginning, you can see why it's just unthinkable to think that, that, that any of them would have learned from Paul any kind of anything that resembled the gospel that says, well, you can take Jesus as your savior, but refuse submission to him as Lord. Such teaching is completely contrary to the truth, contrary to the truth and really cruel to the souls of its hearers. If there's anyone here this evening who is, who is come under the spell of this kind of teaching in any way. If you you think that you can be a believer in Jesus and yet you're completely comfortable living just like the world, I'm here to tell you, you are not in a safe place spiritually. To use Paul's language, you have, you have not rightly heard Christ, or I'm sorry, rightly learned Christ. Perhaps you've heard about him, but you've not listened with true saving faith. Maybe you've heard about him, but you've not been rightly taught if you've, if you've been taught that it's okay to think that way. If that is true of you, if you have in any way been deceived by such false teaching, we would plead with you, come and talk to us. We'd love to talk about what the implications of the truth, the real gospel, but the simple gospel truth is, yes, it's a gospel of grace, it's the gospel of a Savior who, who bled and died in the cross so that we could be saved by grace through faith alone, but not that we might embrace a kind of pseudo-faith which says, Jesus, my Savior, but not my Lord. Salvation by grace through true faith, faith that embraces Jesus for all that he is. And if you've never embraced him as, as Lord, you don't truly know him as he is. And we would plead with you, come to him in his grace. He will grant you all that you need. He's the one who by his spirit works in our hearts, faith and repentance, such that the true believer comes in repentance and faith. And now having said that, I, I would I would agree with commentator Dr. Baugh, who in his commentator suggests that in this context, Paul's purpose in verse 21 is not to be casting doubt on whether these Ephesian believers have truly believed. His purpose here is really to remind them of the truth. He's saying, you have learned, or, or surely you know these things, while reminding them of the truth, which they surely do know. 
But again, he does so in, in a way that is so wonderfully grace-oriented. He, he reminds them of the truth. He says, you are those who have learned Christ. And not only, not only have you heard about him, but you have been taught in him, in him. Don't miss those words, by the way, in him. There's that language for union with Christ, which we've seen again and again and again. He's saying, you are in him. You're not to live as if you are hopeless. You're not to live lives of futility. You are not hopeless and lost in futility. You are in Christ. He's given you wonderful purpose, wonderful hope. I wonder if sometimes our, our sanctification uh, suffers in ways because we live with a sense of hopelessness. Maybe, maybe you need encouraged this evening as though, though you're a true believer, you're feel, living with a, a bit of a feelings of, of hopelessness in your life. Even as, even as believers with the ongoing reality of sin, sin that remains in us, we all continue to, to struggle with some of these symptoms of lostness. And so maybe you feel discouraged about the fact that you're, you're struggling with sin this evening. Maybe you're feeling that the sanctification process is so painfully slow. And in one level, I'd say that's a good thing. It's a good thing to long for greater sanctification. That's a sign that you truly belong to Christ. You want to grow in his grace. But be encouraged. You're not without hope in this. We're not to feel that we're living in futility as Christians. Maybe you simply feel worn down by the trials of life. Maybe they, they have you feeling as if God is distant from you. Maybe you're feeling with a sense of, or living with a sense of futility of mind, not in a, a good place in your life in terms of your d- duty each day to be fixing your mind on things above. Perhaps your heart has not been particularly soft towards the things of God. And you're, you're living with a, not, not living with a sense of God's closeness. Maybe all because of all of these things, you find yourself falling into particular sins. Well, our, our message to you this evening would be, don't run away from Christ. Run to Christ. As Paul was kind of telling the believers, remember the things that you have learned. Remember what you have been taught. Remember him whom you have learned, Jesus. Jesus, the friend for sinners. Jesus, the Savior, full of mercy who invites you. Come to him again. Remember what he's taught you. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Come to him afresh and receive that grace that you need. And so, yes, remember. Remember who you are. You are a Christ learner not lost without hope or without purpose. God's eternal purpose in Christ has become your purpose in him. You are of that new creation which God has worked and which has already begun in Jesus Christ and which God will complete. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it on to completion. That brings us to our last point briefly about our, our duty to walk according to our new life in Christ. And that is that this is, this is the work, this is the Spirit's work of recreation after the image of God. This is the last section, verses 22 
through 24. Christ learners, what is it that you have learned? Look at what Paul writes. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Children, I want you to imagine something this evening. It's a little bit gross, but I'm going to say it anyway. And everyone's wondering, what's he going to say? <laughs> imagine if you never, ever changed your clothes. Oh, they'd get dirty and smelly and disgusting, not to mention, they, not to mention growing old and worn out. It'd be terrible, right? When I was a camp counselor years ago, I found that some of the kids, they didn't mind not changing their clothes. They'd go through the entire week of Bible camp, never changing their clothes. We used to joke as counselors about going out and messing up the clothes in their suitcase to make it look like maybe they they'd, uh, changed clothes. But no, uh, uh, as Christians, we're not to remain in our filthy old garments. We are called to to put them off and to put on our new clothing. That's the imagery which Paul uses here. It is true that that, that that lostness, that sinfulness, which we see in the Gentiles, we continue to see in ourselves as well. But we have a duty. We are called to, to put it off, put off the old, put on the new self. Perhaps we do well to think about that, right? Every time we put off dirty clothes, and we bathe, and we put on fresh, clean clothes. Isn't that such a great feeling, to be clean and fresh and dressed up in clean clothes? I think think if the children don't quite yet appreciate that, you will come to appreciate that as you get older. For now, you'll have to trust your parents and obey them, right, when they say, go take a bath and get dressed in some clean clothes. But we see the point here. Children of God, your heavenly Father commands you to put off the filthy, old, the dirty, to put on the clean, to do this with respect to your sin. You are called to discern that conduct that is filthy and to discard that and to discern that that righteous conduct which must replace it and put that on. Paul's going to spell out some of the details of that as we're about to approach a section with extensive uh, instructions for Christian living. But we see that it involves mind renewal, verse 23. There's disagreement over whether the, the, the word spirit there is a reference to the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, or whether this is a, ref, uh, a reference to our human spirit. Surely this work of renewal is a work of God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. But I do think that this, in this context, there's a reference to our human spirit here. One commentator suggests that the point is that this renewal must take place in our inner being, the spirit of our minds, that this clothing metaphor does not mean that God is only concerned about our outward conduct. No, it begins on the inside, our hearts, our minds, our wills, of course, our affections, and surely then that will lead to a change of, of outward conduct as well. But it's all of the grace of Christ. This is that, that work of recreation, that new creation, which God has already begun in Jesus Christ. This world, with all of its 
the sin-cursed world with all of its sinful desires. It's, it's growing old. The world itself will be discarded like a garment. That's what we're told in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. It will wear out like a robe, and the Lord will roll it up. He will destroy it completely. But he's creating all things new, new creation, and we are part of that new creation. Indeed, we are the crown of God's new creation in Christ Jesus. We know that so it was with the original creation. We as human beings, we were, we were created in the image of God while sin spoiled that image bearing in us. But what sin has destroyed, Christ has restored, and we are being recreated then as image bearers of God in that we are being made to be like Christ, conformed unto the image of Jesus, the great image bearer, not only as God the Son, but as true man, he bore the image of God perfectly, and that that work that God is doing is to make us just like Christ. And God will not be finished with his work of grace until it culminates in that glorious new creation, even a new world, a new heavens and a new earth. And it will not be a world full of emptiness. It will not be a world without hope, but a world of hope fulfilled, a world of renewed spirits, a world of soft hearts, a world of righteous conduct. What a wonderful world. And what will be most wonderful about it all is that Jesus will be there and we will see him in all of his glory and we will be just like him, seeing him as he truly is. We will be like him. Friends, if if that doesn't blow out of the water, any silly notion that you could have Jesus as your savior without having him as your Lord, that ought to do it, right? No, dear Christian, you, you understand the truth as it is in Jesus, you are no longer, no longer to walk as the Gentiles, but you are to live as God's new creation, which you are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together.